Well, you brought a Bible with you this morning, say yes. And let me invite you to open with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 15 this morning. If you're visiting with us, we'll be going verse by verse through Luke's Gospel. And Luke chapter 15 is where we find ourselves. And over the next few weeks, I want to talk to you on the subject of coming home, coming home. So Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Let me get you to stand with me in honor of God's Word this morning. And Luke chapter 15, verse 1. You've got it there in front of you. Say yes. And uh, the Bible says, uh, one of my favorite verses here, by the way, 15 to verse 1, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, uh, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying, uh, Rejoice with me. I found my sheep which was lost. And I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 8, Or what woman is she? Uh, has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And when she found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. And in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let's bow together. Father, uh, thank you uh, for your grace. We thank you for our opportunity this morning to hear uh, from your word. And we ask that you uh, would give us a heart to worship you like we've never had before. I pray, Father, that you would uh, help us, empower us to love you fully like we never have before. And I pray in the name of Jesus that we will be more passionate about getting the good news of Jesus Christ out to those who are far from you than we have ever been before. And God, I pray in the name of Christ this morning for our time as the word is preached. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd speak to hearts. I pray for those who are outside of the faith that you would call them home, that they would experience salvation in you, forgiveness of their sin. I pray for those who are followers of yours and yet they have kind of stumbled off the genuine pathway. They have wandered from you. Lord, I pray that this message, the series uh, ahead would call them back to yourself, that they would come back home. And Lord, I pray in the name of Christ that we would just experience you. There's no one greater than you. And Father, I pray that that is not simply words from the lips of the preacher, but it really is the heart uh, that is within inside this chest and also the heart of your people here at Concord. And we give you glory for how you're going to speak to us. And it's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. And everybody said, amen. And you can be seated. You know, there is a desire within every single human heart to experience home. Home is often considered a place of belonging, a place of safety, a place of rest. In fact, home is often thought of as a place where we are valued. You know, I've spent some time overseas on uh, some mission trips where I had a deep desire to return home. I remember being in Kenya on one occasion, and after several days of just eating tuna and sleeping on what they called a bed, 
I was laying at night uh, where it was extremely dark. I mean, darkest night I've ever seen. And uh, inside, I just had this great desire to get back home. You know what I'm talking about? That desire to get back in your bed, that desire to be back at home. Whenever you experience that, you call it being homesick. You know, I've even been on vacation before while I was enjoying myself, but a few days later, after being there, I just had a desire to head back home. And I think of every military service person who spent time away, who finally did return home, and what satisfaction seems to fill their lives whenever they do return. You've seen the videos on the news, I'm sure I've seen them many times, even seen them on YouTube videos where the military person is actually coming home in the airport and all of the family is hanging out there waiting for them just to arrive at the top of the escalators. And as soon as he comes up or she comes up, the family rushes to grab hold as they celebrate the fact that he has returned home. Now think about those who have worked a long time as well. As I was typing on Monday this message, I thought about some of you guys who were at work and maybe you've been there several hours doing all kinds of stuff, delivering packages and uh, no telling what you've been up to and you just long, you couldn't wait for it to be over because you just want to go home. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Say yes. Desire to be home. Think about those who are listening to me preach right now. And deep down, you just say, I just want to go home, all right? Let this guy be done. And uh, no one should say amen to that, all right? But it's amazing. Home, we love it. We look forward to it. And in a sense, all of us are homebodies. But what if I told you this morning, you really uh, have this desire to be home, but the home you genuinely long for is not found upon the earth? Do you know, universally, it is true that this home is thought about by every single man. You and I were created for eternity, the Bible says. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, the Bible teaches that God has set eternity in the heart of every man. Now, temporary homes cannot fill the gap in our souls for an eternal home. See, this home is not only thought about by every man, but this home is also longed for by every single person. You know, deep down, there's a sense within every person on the planet, every person in the country, every person in the county, every person on your street, and there's an aching, there's a longing, there's a desire to experience an eternal home. You know, there was an anonymous author who has written, my heart is a gypsy, continuously searching for a home, fighting within itself, Wondering whether it is weak or even right, for that matter, to be searching in the first place. Loneliness is what it feels like. Loneliness. That is the itch which the Lord God gave every human that you and I are incapable of actually scratching. But because of the deceitfulness of our own hearts, we tend to think the purpose in this life is to find comfort for our bodies. When in fact our bodies are only temporary dwelling places for our souls. Our souls, however, are made for eternity. Thus our souls long for an eternal home. You know, it's been said before that you are not a body with a soul. You are a soul with a body. You know, universally men have sought to find some R&R, so to speak, for this yearning that they have within themselves. This R&R is not rest and relaxation, but Rather, two other words, uh, rebellion and religiosity. And there are many individuals who are, through their rebellion, really seeking 
to scratch an itch which they can't. And there are individuals as well who through their religiosity are seeking to fill a longing which they cannot fulfill in their religious activity. In fact, for just a moment, I want you to consider rebellion. Rebellion is the activity of seeking rest for the eternal soul by fulfilling the insatiable desires of the flesh for the, uh, in direct opposition to God. And let me say that again. I think we've got it on the screen for you. But rebellion is the activity of seeking rest for the eternal soul by fulfilling the insatiable desires of the flesh in direct opposition to God. See, the reason an individual runs away from the Lord is not because he has found satisfaction in something else. The reason an individual runs away from the Lord is because they are seeking satisfaction in something. And so in their pursuit, in their rebellion, in their turning away from God, they really are trying to simply find satisfaction in their soul, but they can't find it. And there are some individuals perhaps who are even present this morning in this service, and rebellion really describes your life. You can come to church every Sunday and be rebellious in your heart. And so you're here this morning, and you are rebelling against God, seeking simply to fulfill the desires of your flesh, trying to fill up this void which is there, which you are incapable of fulfilling. And while an individual in their rebellious lifestyle like to brag on themselves, if you were to get gut-level honest this morning, when you sit alone, maybe at night in your room by yourself, you come to the realization that none of your rebellious activity actually satisfies the genuine longing of your heart. Rebellion. But then I also want you to see this morning that religiosity doesn't satisfy either. Religiosity, here's kind of that concept in a sentence. Religiosity is the activity of seeking rest for the eternal soul by abstaining from the insatiable desires of the flesh in efforts to appease God. And so there are some individuals who would not be categorized as rebellious, turning against the Lord, but there are some who are very religious, and they think, okay, I've got this desire in my heart, and I don't know how to fulfill it, so let me do this. Let me uh, go to church a whole bunch. Let me get baptized a whole bunch of times. Let me take the Lord's Supper. Let me do this. Let me do that. Let me get involved in this activity, this activity, this activity. And they're trying their very best just to feel the longing by what they do, somehow hoping that God will just be appeased and his wrath won't be poured out on them. And yet, if you were to get gut-level honest, sitting in your room at night, all alone in the darkness, you realize that even your religious activity doesn't fill the gap which God himself actually gave you. Consequently, neither the rebellious heart nor the religious heart ever finds the eternal home for which they were created. And this is the primary reason Jesus, listen, left home to come to earth. The Bible says in Luke 19 and 10, the Son of Man has come, listen, he's come to seek and to save that which is lost. And in Luke chapter 15, we get a chance to see the heart of the Lord Jesus 
in this endeavor to help the soul of man find his eternal home in a relationship with the one true eternal God. In fact, Charles Stanley has written, quote, outside of a real and dynamic relationship with God, even a successful life will be full of futility and vanity, end quote. Listen closely. You are here this morning, and the question is, what are you seeking to fill the eternal gap which God has placed in your soul? God put that there on purpose so that you would long for him. And Jesus has come to show us how that eternal void can be filled by the eternal Son of God. If you don't come to Christ, you will never find satisfaction in your rebellion. And if you don't come to Christ, you will never find satisfaction in your religiosity. If you don't come to Jesus, you will not only experience the emptiness here while you are on the earth, but once you face God at judgment day, you will experience that aching emptiness for all of eternity in hell. So everyone has this, but this text in Luke 15, which I deeply love, are many parables. Parables that Jesus taught you and I to express, all right, express his heart and actually going after those who are far from the Lord. So here's the great news of the message before I even begin to preach. Y'all listening, say yes. Before I even begin to preach, I want you to know that if you would say, Levi, I am far from God. I'm outside of faith. I don't know the Lord. Matter of fact, as soon as you came in here, perhaps you began to feel and sense condemnation in your life. And all of a sudden, the enemy begins to say to you, you don't need to be here in church. What are you doing? Uh, if these people really knew who you were, they would boot you out of this place, man. If they knew what you were thinking, if they knew what your heart was, there's no way the enemy says that. That is not the heart of God. When you come into worship, God's desire is to draw you to himself. God gave you the void so that he himself could fill the void and satisfaction could be found in only him. And Jesus, throughout this gospel of Luke, repeatedly encourages people to follow him. And the false message that's being preached today is this. If you will follow Jesus, you'll be rich. If you will follow Jesus, all of your health issues will be solved. If you follow Jesus, you'll get this, you'll get that. And so people begin to say, okay, if I follow Jesus, I get that, I get this, I get that, I get it. Yes, I'll follow Jesus. That is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus is calling you to follow him even if. You lose everything. That's the gospel. So if you have said in your life, I'm coming to Christ so all my bills can get paid, you have not come to the biblical Jesus. And that's the thing. The enemy, this is all free preaching. Are you all all right? But the enemy will actually create false Christ and encourage people to follow those false Christ. Paint images. But Jesus in this text, what I love is that he is after those who are far from God. 
In fact, only two statements this morning for you to jot down in your notes that I want to give you from this text. But here's the first one. Jesus looks forward to welcoming individuals who are far from God. Did you hear that? Jesus looks forward to welcoming individuals who are far from God. Luke chapter 15, verse 1, look at it. The Bible says, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming to listen to Jesus. Did y'all see that, by the way? I love this uh, fact in Luke's gospel, and we see this throughout the gospels, but they separate the tax collectors and the sinners as if they are a different group of people. Let me see if I can get a witness on this this morning. Tax collectors are sinners. (laughs) Shall I give you another chance? Tax collectors are sinners. And here's the deal. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's holy standard. But the unique thing is that Jesus has this drawing power that when you follow the life of Jesus Christ in his ministry, you will discover that those who are far from God are drawn to him. Jesus is described in the New Testament as a friend of sinners. And what is amazing is that Jesus did not repel those who were far from God, but his lifestyle uh, and his preaching actually attracted them. And we see the religious who thought they were close to God were the ones who grumbled. Uh, The Bible says that they were uh, grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That is, they barked out their complaints about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word receive is an awesome word in the Greek New Testament. It means to look forward to welcoming. The Pharisees and the scribes saw Jesus experiencing happiness and joy while expressing hospitality toward those who were considered outsiders. They said, this Jesus, they didn't even name him, by the way. This man, he welcomes sinners and eats with them. It's like, who is this guy? Hanging out with all of these sinners. You know that you do not have a genuine relationship with Jesus, but are simply religious. If you find yourself ostracizing those who are far from the Lord. So if you find yourself saying, what is that guy doing here at church? What what is she doing here? What are these people doing here? If they keep coming in here, they're going to contaminate us. Here's the bottom line. If that's your heart, you're the one contaminated. You've not come to Christ. Christ drew these people, and what's wild is that the rebellious showed up, but so did the religious. But they couldn't stand the fact that Jesus welcomed sinners. Jesus proceeds in that moment to tell them a parable. You know the parable. Many of you, especially if you've grown up in church, you've heard it a hundred times, I'm sure. But look at verse 4 again. He's like, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go after the one who is lost until he finds it? And this is a rhetorical question to the people who are listening. It's obvious that a good shepherd is going to leave the 99 sheep to go after the one who is lost. No shepherd would just be like, well, I got 99, that one can die. That's not how the shepherd rolls, all right? The shepherd has to keep up with all of the sheep. And one reason that he pursues the lost sheep is because he has been given charge to oversee the master's sheep. And if he loses one of them, he's got to cough up the money to pay for the lost sheep. So he is driven to go and find the one sheep. Now, 
in a very similar way, and how much more I could say it like that. If a shepherd will not accept the loss of only one sheep, what is the desire of the Lord Jesus Christ to accept the loss of a soul? He has not that desire. The Bible says he's not willing that any would perish, but all would come to everlasting life. Now, if a sheep is not disposable, then how can any human who is created in the image of God be counted by others as disposable? And that's what the religious people are doing. Like all these tax collectors, these sinners, look at Jesus hanging out with them. These people are outcasts. They don't know God. They are, listen, disposable. How can we say that about anybody who is created in the image of God? God's image is upon every single human. God values every single life. So if that is the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, it should also be the heart of the church to value people. Now, John records Jesus in his gospel saying, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Further still, Jesus said in John 10 and 14, I'm the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. So I kind of give it to you like this. This has got three stars by it in my notes. So that means listen, listen, listen. If a shepherd would rush to save a sheep, listen, who lacks a soul. Animals do not have souls. All dogs don't go to heaven, all right? Please don't come or email me about that statement. But anyway, so uh, if the shepherd, though, would rush after a lost sheep who has no soul, how intense do you think God the Father is in sending his son to go search out those individuals who do have souls and are made in his image? He is after them. After them. Verse 5 and 6, when he's found it, it's like he finds the sheep. He lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And, and here's kind of where the thing came from. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. I found my sheep, which was lost. Now, as I mentioned, when the shepherd loses the sheep, it cost him some money. So when he found it, he'd get everybody together. And even all the other shepherds were actually fired up and excited for this one shepherd. That's why there's joy. Jesus kind of expands on the teaching in verses 8 and 9. Look at that. What woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me. I found the coin which I had lost. One commentator notes, when a Jewish girl uh, would marry, she began to wear a headband of ten silver coins to signify that she was now a wife. And it was the Jewish version of a modern-day wedding ring. And it would be considered a calamity for her to lose one of those coins. And, you know, Palestinian houses were extremely dark. So she had to light a lamp and search until she found the lost coin. And we can imagine her joy at finding it. If you've ever lost anything of great value, you know the intensity at which you went to look for it. I remember uh, getting on an airplane on one occasion uh, to go preach down uh, in Florida, and I had just gotten a gift. It was an Amazon Kindle. Y'all know what I'm talking about, yeah? And so a Kindle is an electronic book. It's very neat. You should buy one, Amazon.com. But anyway, so uh, <laughs> this message brought to you. But I remember I got 
on the plane, and while I'm sitting there, you know, trying to get everything situated, you know, taking off my shoes and cutting my toenails, and I'm, that was a joke. But anyway, so I'm hanging out there. I all of a sudden realize that I left the Kindle, left it out there in the airport. So in a panic, I jump up and run to the stewardess, who's just about to close the door, and say, I left my Kindle. Can I please go back and get it? She says, you have a minute and 30 seconds, and then the door shut. I never ran so fast, <laughs> but I hauled. I got the Kindle, and I made it back. Can I get a witness on that? <laughs> but I remember how intense I was with that, and I'm thinking, I was running after a Kindle. Jesus is coming after souls. How intense. How motivated do you think he is in reaching you, even you who are here today? So Christ is coming for you. Christ is coming for you. And here's the awesome thing. I think you guys would agree with me on this, but consider for just a moment, Jesus is the head of the New Testament church. Do you all agree with this? Say yes. Jesus is the head of the church. Y'all agree? Say yeah. So Jesus is the head. Now follow my train of thought. Jesus is the head of the church. The church is the body. If Jesus is intent on getting after those who are outside of the faith, then it only makes good logical sense that that's what the church would be doing. So the intensity which Christ has in reaching those who are far from God, that should be the same intensity that you and I have as a body of believers here at Concord in reaching those who are outside of the faith. You know, I think about that, and I, I get, like, deeply convicted. Y'all all right? And the, the reason I do is because I know, like, there are times in my own personal life where my zeal for the lost is uh, very small. My passion to go and share the gospel with those who are far from God uh, seems to be waning. And uh, I'm not as passionate as I know that I should be. And then I think about our fellowship here at Concord and think, how passionate are we at really seeking those who are outside the faith? I mean, how geared up are you about finding somebody who's lost this week? And, and the scary part, are y'all listening say yes? The scary part is that God gave us the job, the task, of being his hands and feet to go and reach out. And the wild thing is that if we don't reach out as a church to those who are far from God, we are misrepresenting the head of the church who is Jesus Christ. So we should have like this, whatever it takes, man, reaching people, whatever it takes. Y'all out there? Let me, uh, let me just go to the second point. This is real. This is flowing well this morning. Can I get a witness? Yeah. Here's point number two. Here we are. 
Jesus, and I love this, he magnifies the joy when one person enters into the family of faith. He magnifies the joy of his home when one person enters into the family of faith. Look at verse 7 in your Bible. He says, I tell you the same way, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, this is in the context of the shepherd coming home with the lost sheep and then all of his friends rejoicing over it. And Jesus is like, when one soul turns from trying to make their own home and trust Jesus Christ for forgiveness, heaven is aware of that. Heaven is aware that another person is on their way to the true eternal home. And they see Jesus carrying that soul home and they are filled with joy in heaven. And then verse 10, in the same way I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And repent just means to have a change of mind, a change of heart, which leads to a changed life. So you come, you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, understanding you're a sinner, deserve hell, but God graciously sent Jesus to search out after you. He came, he died on the cross, paying for the penalty of your sin, was buried and resurrected. And when you see the gospel and you turn from your sin and trust Christ, that is the act of repentance. And when that happens, the Bible says all of heaven goes nuts. So they do. Now, why are the angels so amazed? This is kind of the question that led me on a hunt in my study this past uh, week. Why are the angels so fired up when people uh, repent? What is so exciting to them about this? Uh, listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11. He's talking about salvation. He starts it like this. As to this salvation, the prophets, speaking of the Old Testament prophets, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Can I give you all a little indication of what that's talking about? Here's the deal. Prophets of the Old Testament wrote down what God was telling them, and when they stopped writing it down, they started studying what they had just written, trying to figure out what the Lord was talking about. They were looking ahead. And then the Bible says, and I like this, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, you in the future, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, sent from home. The Holy Spirit comes, indwells the preacher, and he delivers the gospel. And the preacher doesn't necessarily have to be a pastor, but a believer who is sharing the gospel. And through the gospel, now the prophets are beginning to understand everything that they had written previously because it's all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. But here's what's crazy. Y'all still with me? That was crazy enough, wasn't it? The Bible says at the end of that verse, things into which angels long to look. Scripture makes it plain to us that the angels have this desire to actually understand what salvation is all about. Angels do not fully grasp it. They are not redeemable beings. They don't experience grace. 
They don't understand salvation fully. And this Bible says that they, they long to look. It gives the imagery of angels. And I would kind of do it for you like this. As they, if this is the balcony of heaven, they are peering over. All right, these angels are. They're looking over into salvation, trying to figure it out. So they're peering in. Even this morning as I'm preaching, and I've never thought about it like this before until this message, but as I'm preaching, the angels of heaven are looking over into the fellowship, trying to figure out salvation. They are flabbergasted, I mean amazed, when a person repents. It's amazing. They don't understand it. They're like, that dude, and I'm sure they don't say dude, but... That guy there was a hellion, directly rebellious against God all of his life. And look, look at what happened. They tapped the other angels. Check this out. Do you remember him? Remember how he lived? Look, look. And his life through repentance and faith in Christ is immediately changed. And God wipes away every single sin. And the angels look at each other, and they're like, that makes no sense to me, but glory be to God. And they worship. And the Bible says they fall down in worship to the Lord. That's what they're doing. Angels looking over into the truth of the gospel. The book of Ephesians talks about angels as well. And let me just kind of give this to you in a nutshell because it is awesome tells us that the preaching of the gospel to the Gentiles, that is, those who are not Jew, and their redemption and their welcome into the body of Christ alongside believing Jews is done so that the angelic host are given the ability to witness the manifold wisdom of God. The manifold wisdom of God is described in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10, and it literally means the different colors of God's wisdom. Are y'all listening this morning? God's wisdom is not just one shade. All right? He has a multicolored wisdom. And what is crazy is that God has chosen to actually manifold the different colors of his wisdom to the angels in heaven by redeeming both Jew and Gentile alike and bringing them together as one body. The angels are amazed. They see the wisdom of God over and over again. Every time someone is redeemed, they're shocked. They see another different color of God's grace, and they worship him even more. And God, in his perfect timing, according to the Bible, is actually going to take the church, which if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a member of the body of Christ, the church, God is going to take the church, God the Father will, and check it out, he will present the church as a bride to Jesus Christ. This will be God the Father's love gift to his son for all of eternity. There's the church. Is it here, son? And then the Bible teaches that the angels will be overwhelmed by the colorfulness of the wisdom of God. And they worship. Now, y'all still with me say yes? Y'all look like I'm making up stuff. It's all in the Bible. It's crazy good, isn't it? Here's the deal. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus was passionate about reaching those who are outside the faith. Therefore, the church should be passionate now, when a person repents 
everybody in heaven rejoices and worships the Lord, what should the church do? It's almost like uh, you, you've seen before those applause-o-meters. Have you seen those? It's like clap, 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 and the thing goes over, over, over etching. Here's what I've noticed, all right? Um, or at least I, not just here, I've noticed it several places. But I, you preach, a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ, the pastor stands up and says, I want to introduce you to this guy right here, man. He gave his heart to Christ. Here, here, here's what most people in church do. Are y'all listening? But, but the Bible says everybody in heaven, crazy. They're bowing down at the feet of Christ, worshiping him. They see the manifold wisdom of God. They're overwhelmed by his colors. And then we're like, oh, he got saved? Well, well that's cool, man. All right. That's backwards, I think. That's not right. You know what I mean? And I like shooting you straight as an arrow. I've experienced the same thing. I've seen people get saved. And I'm like, that's awesome, man. And here, right, here I've done this. That is awesome. But I'm so geared on the next service, so geared on what the next task is, I don't take time to just be overwhelmed by the grace of Christ. We miss it. We miss, listen, what motivates angels in heaven to worship the Lord is the repentance of people on the earth. So what should motivate our worship? People repenting. You know, last service we baptized Casey Standridge. He came forward last Sunday on Mother's Day and gave his heart to Jesus, right? So I used him kind of as an example to talk about, you know, how we respond to people being saved. Casey last week came to church on his way to hell. But he left church on his way to an eternal home. He, he stepped out of darkness into the light by the grace of the Son of God. And when that occurs in a church, we ought to be crazy about it. I don't know how else to say that. We just ought to be fired up. All the excited. Here, here's kind of what I'm learning, what's convicted the fire out of me. So I'll give it to you like this. Y'all listening say yes? Y'all can see these. This is very important. All right? I fear that our level of joy when a person comes to know Christ is actually matched by our level of genuine, authentic love for Christ. And the reason we don't get fired up about it, because we're really not all that excited about Jesus. Now, I know when I preach a sermon like this, somebody's sitting out there going, well... Bless the Lord, y'all just trying to get emotional down there when people get saved. So? Who cares, man? If all of heaven's rejoicing, throwing parties, worshiping the Lord, and we get a little excited and smile and clap and cheer for Christ, it'll be all right. Or I'll do it myself, I reckon. But that's what's happening in heaven. This home, this home, this longing inside of you, this longing inside of every single person that lives on your street, this longing is only fulfilled by the person of Jesus Christ. That's where the home is found. 
Jesus says, hey, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place there for you. If it were not true, I would have told you. And then somebody pipes up from the disciples and says, we don't know where you're going. How are we supposed to know the way? Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to God the Father who's in home. All right? Nobody comes to him except through me. Jesus is the way. That's the satisfaction to the longing you possess. If you don't come to Christ, you'll never know the satisfaction. But you come, all of heaven rejoices, and the church should too. Amen? Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, speak to hearts.